the Brown Pundits Browncast. Hey everybody, uh, this is Razib here, and I am here with Thomas Chatterton Williams, a writer based out of Paris. Thomas, could you introduce yourself? Hi, it's Thomas Williams. I'm a contributing writer of the New York Times Magazine and a 2019 uh, National Fellow at New America. Thanks for having me, Razib. New America. Yeah, I, I do like New America. There's a lot of great writers there, um, thinkers in general. So, um, you know, I think you would describe yourself as a writer. What does that mean to you? Um, you're not writing novels, are you? Although, you know, maybe you um, have written fiction. I have spent three years of my life working on a novel that has stayed in my desk drawer. Um, so I haven't published any fiction. I think a writer is somebody who... Um, asks questions uh, and figures out the answers or figures out other questions uh, to ask from those initial questions on the page and thinks out loud. Um, and I think it's somebody that cares about language, really cares about um, the difference between somebody passing on information or, 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 or doing some forms of journalism and a writer, I guess, is, is a certain attention to uh, language in itself, not just meaning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I, I do I do a little bit of writing, and um, I do think that one reason I I feel weird or I don't ever generally say I'm a writer is because um, anyone can tell you uh, I am not much of an aesthete, whether it's visual <laughs> or um, linguistic, whether it's you know I mean prose. Uh, I, I think I can write okay sometimes, but I mean that's almost a side effect of the way I write, and you know I mean. Most scientists, they actually do write, you know, and obviously they don't consider themselves writers. And if you read scientific prose, um, it's quite functional. Right. And, uh, you know, I mean, this is this is why Richard Dawkins, um, someone like him, or, mm-hmm. you know, the late Stephen Jay Gould are praised so much oh, yeah. for their science writing, because they're scientists that can actually um, produce engaging prose, which, which most scientific um, writing is not. I mean, there are some people who do write really great papers, and they're just well-known for that because it's so rare, you know? And so um, I do think your emphasis on style is, uh, is, is well taken. So you said you have a novel in a, in, in your drawer. Like, do you literally have, you literally have sheets of paper in your drawer? I literally have 250 pages of something that has a story that has a beginning, middle and end, uh, that I worked on for three years of my life. And, um, self-financed that labor from my original advance um, for, my, for my first book, which was a memoir, um, which, which I kind of published. Um, I got a deal while I was still in grad school, and I, and, and I had this advance. I finished the, that book very fast, and I thought, next thing to do is to write a novel. And I just thought it would just happen as naturally as the memoir did. But uh, I went through many drafts with my agent, and I just felt that... Um, I'm going to have to come back to that. I'll either have to start a new story or come back to that. But, you know, it was, it, it, it wasn't, it never achieved, I guess, um, the words on the page never achieved the kind of density that, that you can get in nonfiction. I felt that it was very thin. I, I don't know if that makes sense, mm. but. Um, no, I think it is. Without the, without the crutch of, of, of events actually existing. Um, mm-hmm. I felt mm-hmm. that there was something that was, there was, it was not quite doing enough. And so it was terribly, um, frustrating and disappointing experience I had to really um I had to come to a point where I could break up with that because once you invest so much time in a project it's you you know um you kind of yeah you end up throwing good money after bad to to try to recoup your losses it's a sunk cost fallacy yeah exactly um 
you know, it's interesting that you did say density because uh, I do want to bring the fact up that, um, you know, I've been watching, I mean, we all have the media change and communication. And so, you know, I, I started blogging in 2002 and I am on Twitter and, you know, live streaming is becoming really big with Twitch and other things with millennials and younger generations, Gen Z. Um, and then, of course, you have podcasting. And it's really, um, really come home to me how data dense nonfiction writing is compared to, say, a YouTube live stream. <laughs> um, because I have, um, I don't know, I, I've done a couple of live streams and I've watched scientific live streams, and there's so little that people can cram into an hour, which is a reasonable mm-hmm. non-Joe Rogan-esque length. And then there's the issue with what the structure that writing imposes on you, um, just putting it down on the printed page, you know, with paragraphs mm-hmm. and and whatnot. Um, you know, there are some podcasts and there are some YouTubes where people are just writing off, reading off a script, which like it's not very engaging. And I would rather just read because I read faster than they read any read aloud loud yeah. anyway you know um and you know so it's just interesting to me because i never thought about the medium difference too much and then you have twitter um which obviously is very very 280 characters it's highly unstructured aside from the thread so it's it's really constrained in that one way in terms of length per you know byte of info and then it's really unconstrained i mean there's just no structure um, aside from threading and these different formats have just really brought home to me um, how much format matters in mm-hmm. terms of like how dense it is. And also it's not just density because um, as I said, when you're doing ex- extemporaneous conversation, it can be very engaging, but there's definite lack of rigor compared to a manuscript. I mean, I may be a Luddite, I very well may be a Luddite, but uh, I still think that the book is the greatest technology ever created for uh transferring meaning from from one mind to another i mean we may get to a point where you know we just do that directly or something but there's no there's no technology that's better than the book i i, I like podcasts and things like that but there's just no comparison um and, and twitter i find um, myself very conflicted about that technology because i i find that like you know this is probably not an original or deep insight but the the, the medium itself imposes a kind of um, thinness on thinking that, uh, and, and, and a velocity on thinking that is the opposite of what you get out of spending, you know, five to 10 hours with a very good book. Um, writing is always such a disproportionate act. You know, you put in, I put in four years into a book that it would probably take a reader like you, um, five or six hours mm-hmm. to get through, you know, that's an extraordinary disproportionate act of effort. But, um, yeah. but, but, but Twitter, um, when it, it sh- I think that it should be a disproportionate act when, when basically it takes me as long to type as it takes you to read a tweet. I think that that kind of diminishes, um, uh, an exchange of ideas, you know? Yeah. I mean, speaking of thinking out loud, I have to like, so that's actually like pretty deep insight. Um, when I think about it, cause you know, I, myself, uh, like last Friday, to give you an example, um, there was a tweet that um, offended me as happens every single day, every single hour, probably. Um, but normally they don't motivate me to do anything, but I decided to Friday night, um, you know, I had some time after work and dinner and I wrote a 5,000 word essay in five hours, like really quickly. Wow. Right. And then, but, but, but think about like, it's not gonna take five hours to read, 
you know, no. I put that time in um, to produce it. And it's been widely read, you know, whatever. It's been shared. So th- that intent and my rage at the tweet <laughs> um, was translated to something substantive. But the ratio, you know, probably take, it was, I think it was like 10, 500 words a page. It's like, you know, eight to 10 pages. Uh, you're not going to read that in, in, you know, five hours. That should be like less than an hour, hopefully. Um, well less than an hour, like hopefully less than 30 minutes, you know, yeah, to read. 15, but, I mean, I, I think, yeah, I think that's a, that's a good, it's a good way to think about it in terms of, because with the podcasting, yeah, there's some editing, but you outsource a lot of that. Um, but it, the ratio of conversation to like work put in is so different. For most people, there are some people who put a lot of effort in and, you know, they have professionally produced shows. And it's This and American it's Life. Quote, unquote, show. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it shows. It shows that labor. You see the labor, yeah, labor matters in that way. The, the the labor of thinking, the labor of structuring, I think, really matters in how you um, in how you share information. So much of writing mm-hmm. is not just uh, communicating; it's structuring. It's it's it, you, you're, you're, there's an architecture to well written prose that um, mm-hmm. that if you're doing it well, the mm-hmm. reader isn't consciously aware of necessarily, but it affects the way that the information is received. Um, I, the mm-hmm. books and, and, and long form, uh, magazine pieces, that's the best that we have still, as far as I'm concerned, but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm about mm-hmm. to turn 38, so I'm already outdated. No, no, yeah. I'm a little older than you, but, um, I, I, I hear you, you know, um, the codex became really popular 2000 years ago with the Bible. <laughs> uh, before that there were manuscripts, you know, mm-hmm. so I mean, Scrolls definitely like, that had a, uh, yeah. And that, had, that probably had some effect, but, um, you know, it's interesting to think how the structuring works because, um, you know, I've been recently thinking about a book that I read like three or four years ago called Warriors of the Cloisters. And it's by a uh, scholar of Central Asian Studies, Christopher Beckwith at Indiana University. And he argues that um, what he calls the recursive argument technique, which was invented in viharas in uh, Central Asia and Buddhist Central Asia um, before the fifth century AD. And eventually, um, viharas transformed into madrasas. Mm-hmm. When these people converted to Islam, the idea of the madrasa came from the Eastern world of Islam. It was not indigenous to Arabia. And um, the recursive argument technique was promoted by, you know, men like Avicenna, um, Islamic mm-hmm. intellectuals, you know, of the quote-unquote golden age. And it transformed into the scholastic system in the West. And his argument is that the scholastic system of disputation, of, uh, you know, arguments and dialogues back and forth in a very structured format in writing. Um, one thing that I think we do have to say today, just looking at these scholastic arguments, like think about like, you know, Thomas yeah. Aquinas or something like that. It, they're very nerdy, <laughs> literally nerdy. I mean, like these people are so structured in the way they think and talk, but you know, um, I'm starting to think that that was probably a big deal. Beckwith argues that the origins of science, as we understand it, is due to this like highly imposed structure. Because as you know, science is usually thought of as a system, right? right? It's a specific way to think um, that is pretty unnatural for the scientists themselves. You know? Yeah, and I, you know, I wonder what we're doing to ourselves when we step away from that kind of time-tested way of thinking that has produced so much insight and so much good when we when what we're doing to our brains when we really move into this rapid fire kind of superficial exchange twitter maybe i'm just because i'm in the media i'm too focused on twitter and most people really don't live their lives caring about tweeting this Mm -hmm. way but i'm depressed i'm profoundly depressed (laughs) the more time i spend on twitter you know I think that's the great luxury of being a very successful writer 
very financially successful writer or a very famous mm-hmm. writer that you can step away from Twitter. You can have that kind of peace of mind. I think for, mm-hmm. for people underneath, you know, a million followers, you kind of need to promote your work that way. I thought that was one of the mm-hmm. greatest things Ta-Nehisi Coates did stepping away from Twitter. I wish I could do it. Yeah. I envy that Zadie Smith never has to go on Twitter. Yeah, that's called privilege. Yeah, that's privilege. That's exactly. serious that's privilege. privilege. You don't have to deal with these streets, you know, <laughs> these intellectual streets. You, you are a true patrician of the mind <laughs> when you can turn your back upon the pleas exactly. and retreat into your manse atop the hill. <laughs> I, I, I totally agree with you. Um, I'm on Twitter uh, as well. I, I feel like everyone on Twitter says the same thing. It's like a relationship with an abusive spouse. Exactly. Um, you know, the the mental barbarism unleashed has become progressively worse. Um, it something has, changed, uh, right? Yeah. If you were on ten, like what, ten years ago, something really changed, Which I was. right? Well, I got on two thousand nine. Yeah. The goodwill, the goodwill has is gone out of the system. Yeah, it's just gone. It's it, just it, always outrage and always um, attributing the worst motivations to mm-hmm, your interlocutor. Mm-hmm. It's just they're, they're mobs and monsters in the dark. Yeah, you yeah. know, you 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 need to beware. You need to stay t- true to your tribe, true to your people. Um, just charity and goodwill is gone, and it creates a brittleness, a suspicion. Um, out there that is very, very dispiriting. It's appealing to our worst natures, unfortunately. And um, this is why I was bringing up the idea of this, um, you know, treatise Mm -hmm. system, which was so unnatural and, you know, forced us to engage the opposite view. I think what Twitter is doing now and how it has changed is you don't need to engage the opposite view. You describe them right. as the monsters you perceive you them and that becomes reality. You know? As far as you're concerned, that's reality. Um, yeah, you caricature the yeah. opposite view. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's unfortunate. So um, on a slightly different note, I, I'm curious. Um, one thing that I wondered about is, uh, you know, the role of being a cosmopolitan and being a thinker and a writer and you know um you know i've moved around a lot in my life you live in paris that's right i mean you are out of central casting <laughs> for the cosmopolitan like you open up the dictionary and there's a picture of you smiling um with your baguette <laughs> you know <laughs> and your uh and your name and um so i mean i, I do wonder though um, what does the the role of of your not class, but just like your or your your reality as a cosmopolitan person and being a thinker and a writer, and you know you not being that atypical or you know even me like I was born in Bangladesh, raised in upstate New York, grew up on the West Coast, live in Texas, fly fairly f- frequently, you know um, it, it's this isn't the normal life for the normal person, even in the United States, especially you know, for the Europe. United States, right? There's many more cosmopolitans where I live here. Many more people who yeah. think it's quite normal to speak more than one language and to, to mm-hmm. be within different national boundaries. <laughs> Rather, you're, you know, I don't know the percentage anymore, but it, it, when I was in college, the like it was not nine percent of American adults had a passport. You know, um, so it's very, yeah, yeah, it's very, it's a very typical kind of American experience. And you know, I've been in Paris for between eight and nine years, um, mostly in the since 2011. 
um, since I, my wife and I moved here from Brooklyn. But before that, after college, I lived in France for a year teaching English and just kind of reading Proust and cafes and being an extreme cliche of a guy that wanted to be a writer. But, you know, the more time that I've spent living in, in France, and the more time I've spent outside of the country, because I lived in Germany a little bit too, um, the more I feel very much like a home, like a person without a home. Uh, in, in Europe, I feel myself to be quite American compared to other people. But as soon as I go home, and I, and I go back to the States pretty frequently, I, I can't help but see the United States now through kind of the eyes of a European. And, and, and immediately, you know, become aware of how unfamiliar a lot of uh, these mores, values, traditions and practices are in other parts of the world, you know. Um, so it kind of, mm-hmm. I think that's actually like it can be a bit of a um, it, 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 can, it can be difficult for an individual to be uh, a foreigner all the time. But um, because I do feel like a foreigner back home now. But I think it's a great asset for a writer, for somebody who wants to, you know, making the world strange all the time and um, kind of uh, taking fewer things for granted than when you're just immersed in a culture from birth, I think helps you notice some things. I, I know that um, I've written two, I wrote my first book, Losing My Cool, partially in Paris and partially in Buenos Aires. And I was really thinking about my childhood and I felt that that distance allowed me to really see New Jersey in a way that was... I think clearer than if I were just in Brooklyn and I've written my second book that's coming mm. out in the fall. Um, uh, also abroad. And I, and I just find that it's, it's helped me a lot. Um, and in my, you know, in my, in, in, in my journalism, I feel like, you know, everybody is kind of in Brooklyn. So it's good to be, it's good to have some other points of reference and some other stories to pitch. So I feel like it's been quite an asset to be a cosmopolitan as a writer. Um, and, and, you know, in, as you would know, and probably members of your family know, it's always challenging to be an immigrant, though, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, you know, we live in a world, and, you know, my own my own personal politics, I would say, are definitely a right of center, uh, mostly because I don't want to go to a gulag, <laughs> um, to be frank. You know, it's just, I mean, that's, you know, who who's against me? I'm against them. That's that's basically my attitude. I'm not very ideological at this point because that's where we are in the United States, um, you know. But I, I, it's an, I have an interesting discussion with people sometimes who are you know consider themselves very progressive, and um, they've lived in L.A. and New York, or maybe they lived in a very conservative suburb of Dallas. I mean, these are real people that I'm thinking about, and they have a certain view of what it means to be diverse right, and multicultural. Right. And I am a pretty jaded because I grew up with immigrant parents and it, for me it wasn't really a choice it's just my life I had to switch back and forth I you know I am diversity I just I just brought it right into the room <laughs> right now you know so it's not for me it's not a big thing right. to talk about it's just like my life you know and my dad um, you know the story that I told and I've told on this podcast before is my dad he was born a citizen of British India grew up as a Pakistani citizen um, for nine years of his life he was a Bangladeshi citizen and now he's an American citizen for, you know, more than half of mm-hmm. his life now. And I mean, that was just, I guess it was random, but I mean, yeah. that's just his life, you know? And, um, you know, growing up in this country and like when they go back, they don't remember Bangladesh. The Bangladesh they remember right. doesn't exist. So they're, they're people without a country in a way. Um, even though if you met them and listened to them, you'd be like, oh, they're from Bangladesh. But I mean, the way they speak actually, like imagine talking to someone that stepped out of 1979. And didn't come back. That's yeah. what talking... Yeah, that 
that's what talking to them is like for people from Bangladesh. My cousins have explicitly told me when they go back, I'm like, your parents are weird <laughs> because they talked about stuff like, I don't know, like before I was born, <laughs> you know, they just, you know, they, and they have like weird dialectical ticks from that era and their expectations are cued to the era. So they're frozen there. I see how you that know, can happen. Myself, I mean, but, the internet flattens the world a lot. I felt that, um, it's very different to be an American writer living in Paris now than when, you know, the guys like Hemingway were doing that. Now, as soon as I wake up, I can look at my phone, Instagram and Twitter and the New York Times right there all in my phone before I even get out of bed. And I'm really in American culture. Uh, so it's, so it, it really, it, it makes it, you wouldn't have the, you wouldn't have the kind of stuck in 1979 experience anymore, I don't think, because of, because of, how accessible everything is but that's an interesting i see how that can happen though you know like i i see how i see how without my iphone without my laptop it would happen yeah they don't have there's no pop cultural references and um you know there weren't that many bangladeshis in this country when when my parents came um you know around 1980 uh basically um you know outside of a few areas like maybe like queens you know in this country there were no critical mass of Bangladeshis. There weren't even that many South Asians. So if you saw a brown person in a grocery store, you'd make a beeline and ask them where they're from. You know, whatever their religion was, like whether they're from the South, North, East, whatever, you're just like, hey, you're brown. You like spicy food? You want to come over? Done. You know? And so it's not like that today. Um, there's a lot of South Asians. They're 1% of America's population. There's enough critical mass and a lot of, you know, where there's like some nationalities. Yeah. And so um, I have I have much younger siblings. Uh, just because my parents, you know, had kids early and then had kids late, you know, they had, so um, they grew up, I mean, I mean, they, grew, they were born in this country. Um, I was born abroad and brought over as a small child, but, um, you know, they're totally American, but they also have a different experience in that in some ways they are more brown than me because they grew up with more access to brown people yeah, that's around interesting. them. Yeah, that's interesting. You know? Yeah. Even though you're the one that was born abroad. Yeah, I see. Mm-hmm. Well, exciting grow up around brown. You know, it's like I grew up in a county where there were two brown families. The other uh, brown family was a motel owner. My dad was a professor at the college. What, what part of upstate? And, uh, you know, there was. So um, I grew up multiple places. Um, so when I was young, I grew up my I grew up in, around okay, Albany, yeah. Tri City area, which is you know just like classical kind of Rust Belt. But my adolescence was spent in mm-hmm. Eastern Oregon, um, near Idaho. Wow. Yeah, that's like Richard you know, Spencer's yeah. dream ethno state area. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. I mean, sometimes, like, I think I once, one, my friends and I, when I was in like ninth grade, um, we saw a black woman driving a car through town. And we noted it. So we were like, whoa, who is that person? Because she's a black woman. You just don't do that. You just you know. don't do that out there. <laughs> well, <laughs> Well, so the news, the newspaper in, um, and I went back and looked at the census, and this seems like, aside from the college students, this was right, the newspaper in town wrote an article, The Blacks of Union County, um, and it profiled all 12 of them, and um, six of them were members of a particular family, the black family in town, and um, like they'd been in town for like two, two or three mm-hmm. generations, and they were, by that point, most of them were three-fourths white, but whatever, good enough, and then... Um, there were others were black cowboys. Oh wow! That that was it. I mean, literally, they profiled all of them in two pages. You know, just like their life, how they how they got into the region and all that. So I grew up in a very 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 white area. Um, that's just that was my life, you know. And so then I moved to you know 
more blue areas and I live in California, urban areas in the Pacific Northwest and Texas and, you know, flown to New York a lot because it's easy to fly from New York to yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> that's, um, that's kind of a big deal. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Like, I think a lot of friends of mine and myself, like it's one of those parameters that you make in terms of where you want to live. Like, could you, fly yeah, definitely. Are there definitely. It's just, you know, it's just like you're hopping between these global cities and, um, but, you know, just with the election of Trump and just more generally, I do feel a little weird that the public discussion is dominated so much by people like us. Um, and like, I went back to my high school reunion. It was just interesting to see people that had stayed in town, you know, and that were working at Terry trailers and, um, that were friends with people that were friends with high school and they seemed happy. They just had a very different life. It was just a different mm-hmm. thing. And I don't feel that, um, like, you know, even if you watch Fox news, which is supposedly conservative, people like that watch Fox news. They don't get on Fox news. Yeah. The gap, the gap between, I mean, gap between people in the United States. And this is one of the things that I think is underappreciated. Um, I don't know like, if you've read, um, have you ever read um, David Hackett Fisher's Albion no. Seed? So it's a book that basically talks about the origins of the different American Anglo subcultures before independence. Mm -hmm. And there are four major streams. One of them is Puritans. Um, Another one's lowland people in the South that often come from Devonshire. The Puritans tend to come from East Anglia. Um, Then there's Scots-Irish that arrived around, you know, 1750s mostly and later um, in like two or three decades before independence. And they're obviously in the uplands. They come from Northern Ireland and the borders. And finally, there's kind of like a motley cosmopolitan group. Like think about like um, in the mid-Atlantic. So the Dutch in New York and then the Quakers in Philly. And there tend to be more like entrepreneurial and open to cultural diversity. But um, the thesis, which has been expanded later on in, in other books by other people, is that these Anglo subcultures in the United States persist down to the present and affect everyone's perception and to me, that is really, really visible. Um, so I have a friend who is a Korean American who grew up, um, his father is a college professor, you know, whatever. He grew up in rural North Carolina. And it was really obvious to us that our upbringings in different parts of the United States, I grew up in a, in a part of New York where people still remember some of the Civil War regiments that went down south uh, against the traitors, you know, and there was no, there was no, when I was growing up, there was no ambiguity about who was evil and who was good. Um, being taught the Civil War as a recent immigrant, you know, by these teachers, because we all knew in that part of New York who the good guys were. My friend who's Korean American, he was much more ambivalent, even though he knew, like, intellectually, he knew what was the good good side and the bad side. He grew up in rural South Carolina. And there he was taught in a very different way. And so it's like, here we are, the children of immigrants, and yet we are still being affected by these sectarian divisions that date back because it well predates the civil war as you know you know these the rivalries between these like anglo subcultures um to some extent goes back to goes back to um england um you know the the the, the puritans versus the you know the, the roundheads versus the cavaliers and all these things and um you know they're just like kind of just continuing and continuing in different forms and transmuting but the underlying structure is there and um you know i think we have something similar going on in a different dimension now with rural america versus urban cosmopolitan america and you know it's always been like that um i think in human societies there's this sort of complexity and texture and that's what kind of makes it fun but it also makes it stressful 
And, you know, I mean, it's like if you play a sport that's strenuous, I mean, it's exciting, but um, don't expect it always right, to right. be easy. Um, well, yeah, you know, there's a, a, a country like the United States is uh, really like you have to talk about it in terms of regional cultures. You, you're absolutely right. Um, but what's interesting to me about what you said is that uh, it really doesn't, and this gets into kind of uh, your specialty, but also what I'm fascinated about with my own family and seeing some of the changes that have happened in several generations is that it, there's no biological genetic component as people like to think. You, 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 can, place a, you can place a Korean, um, a biologically Korean person, if we can say that, in this kind of region, geographical region, cultural region, and you can develop the type of personality that people assume is a white Southerner personality. You know, I'm fascinated by that. I have, um, you know, children uh, here in Paris who, they're just, uh, my daughter, she is, she is French, you know? And, um, and she's also like, you know, she's, 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 she's white and she's black. Um, there's the idea that, uh, personalities or that you know cultures are biologically uh derived uh it's such a fallacy but we cling to it right mm -hmm. well i mean you know i don't like um i think you know you were on iona atalia's podcast i think i mentioned it there i i don't like the new new fad of saying um interracial relationships or multicultural relationships because i know they are sometimes but you know I don't think I have a different culture than my wife. We just happen to be different races, you know? Like multiculturalism is not, you know, diversity of hues, it's diversity of views, you know, diversity of upbringings. And I don't, I don't like the illusion between the two um, just because one, I'm a nerd and I think it's wrong and it's misleading. Um, but second, um, there's weird essentialism creeping in, uh, which look, the essentialism is quite natural on some levels. Um, the way I sound is not um, weird to me, but I can tell you that I've had throughout my whole life the experience of people who know me through the internet. Um, they're a little surprised <laughs> by the way they sound because they, the way I sound, because they they just imagine someone with an Indian accent, apparently, huh. even though intellectually they knew um, my background, mm -hmm. you know, and, and South Asians, I mean, you know, it's not just white people, like brown people, like, yeah, it's just kind of weird because, you know, in, in my head, you had a somewhat Indian mm -hmm. accent which I don't at all, obviously. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a natural human tendency. You make these correlations. It's, to me, it's not something to be offended by. It's just kind of starting to get really annoying because I've seen over the last, like, five to ten years, people substitute the word multicultural when they really mean well, multiracial. We have such a difficulty speaking you know? about um, race and in a lot of ways because people pay lip service to the idea that race is socially constructed. Culture just steps in and fills the vacuum. So... We, we say that it was a mistake uh, to think of race biologically, and then we double down on that mistake and say, but it's, you know, there are these essential cultural differences. Um, I wonder what you think about that, actually, because I know that, you know, I, I, this is the subject of my forthcoming book on the experience of being a, you know, a, a black father, um, a quote-unquote black father of quote-unquote white kids in Paris and, and kind of having the birth of my very blonde, very blue-eyed, very light, white-skinned uh, daughter kind of thrust the fiction of race in my face. I mean, it prompted the question as soon as she was born, if I'm a black man who can have a child like this, what does race really mean, you know, especially up against the margins. Mm -hmm. But you, I'm, I'm, no, I'm no scientist. I kind of write about, you know, mm -hmm. the imaginative challenge. And like, you know, the, I think of race as a kind of 
a philosophical matter, but you think of it in a very different way. You think of you, you think of genes in a, a you know. Mm-hmm. I wonder, do you agree with what I'm saying here, or do you say, "Wait, hold on a second. We don't know enough. We need to we need to be cautious about um, thinking that it's just that population groups are not actually um, something very much like races." I wonder. I wonder where you differ with me on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've you know I've had <laughs> I've had a lot of discussions with people about this actually, um, and I've written a fair amount about it mm-hmm. as, as you probably know. Um, it's complicated because you know we carve na- nature up at its joints and we give things definitions that um, miss many features but are informative to a particular context. So if I say you are a human being, um, that is an organism with tens of millions of cells that's bounded up in a specific structure, even though you're about seventy percent right. water. Right. I mean, literally, I mean, to say you're a human, really, I could just say you're 70% water, you have this much calcium, you have this, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, that's not, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get a general insight of you as an individual organism that's multicellular, right? Um, so when I think of, uh, when geneticists think of races or populations, there's some of this going on because you think of, I think, I'm assuming you think of like individuals, right? right? What we're thinking about is the genealogies of 20,000 genes, you have 20,000 genes within you and these genealogies we have to summarize them in some way and so we assign a population cluster um the discussion that i've always had privately with a lot of geneticists because many of them not privately also sometimes publicly my problem is when um geneticists say that race is a social construct which is a defensible thing to say because well i mean all of science is a social construct first of all like nothing is you know like this table in front of me um is mostly empty it's it looks solid to us because of various nuclear forces, et cetera, you know? Mm-hmm. But, you know, we call it a table and we call it material because like that's that's an informative way to describe what the phenomenon that we're going. We don't say it's empty space mostly, even though that's what it is. Um, when you say that race is a social construct, people think that there's no structure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, that's a false inference. There's a lot of structure. Okay. Um, if you give me a Korean um, right now with the data I have, which is like say 5,000 individuals in a standard reference panel that I use quite often, I can tell you whether they're from the north or the south of the, of, of the peninsula. Okay, that's, that's information right. right there. If you give me someone from Africa, I can tell you if they're West Africa, East Africa, if they're Khoisan, um, et cetera. Like you can just place people on their spatial locations because people have been separated for you know, tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of years, you know? So like um, one of the things that um, is very shocking and interesting now with ancient DNA is that the hunter-gatherers that lived in in Europe at the beginning of the Holocene, basically after the Ice Age, 10,000 years ago, um, they were confronted at some point by farmers coming out of the Middle East. The genetic distance, if you look at the genes, because now we have genes of these ancient people because we dug them up and sequenced them or genotyped them, um, the genetic distance between these two groups is the same as the genetic distance between modern Chinese and modern Northern mm-hmm. Europeans. Okay. And that is like a G whiz <laughs> fact. And the reason it's a G whiz fact, because it's like, whoa, like they're as different as Chinese and Northern Europeans. And they were living in, well, where you are right now, um, you know, six to 7,000 years ago. And they didn't mix for a long time. It seems like there's some sort of apartheid culture. And then eventually they absorbed the hunter gatherers, et cetera. Like something happened, but we use these, um, you know, as a geneticist, you think about these statistics and these statistics, they are made flesh in terms of like just real life. If someone from Nigeria, um, you know, arrived in Sweden, like, you know, that they're, you know, 
genealogical Even history. They have is very a different genealogical so that's history. What, we're but what about. does that mean in a multi-ethnic society? You know, um, what do you know? We know that physical characteristics track to population groups, and people look like where they come from, more or less. But uh, with such diversity within groups. How do we make a society? How do we make these multi-ethnic societies where people are colliding? My brother, you know, my my, my father is already mixed, uh, as most descendants of Southern slaves are. Um, so he's European and African. My mother is essentially completely Northern European, but of many different um, national influences. Um, and my brother has a child with um, a Russian woman from West Siberia. Those genes really haven't really collided. Uh, she, she looks like a new human being. She's like one of these mm-hmm. National Geographic kids with like yes. brown skin, blonde hair, and blue yeah. eyes. Um, she's a gorgeous kid. This, yes. this is a new face in the world. Um, but in the society that we're living in, uh, this is more and more frequent and it's normal. And we're, so what do we make of we have population pools and things like this, and we have genetic markers, but what do we make of this in the society, in a functioning multi-ethnic society? I guess that's where I think it becomes an imaginative and a philosophical problem, as well as um, a matter of science. We have, to, we, we have to take these differences. People will always be different, come from different places, look differently. Mm-hmm. And, and we, what, what we have to think about is, is, is the meaning we attribute to those differences, right? The values that we, yeah. know, that, that's volitional. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, there is no Jew or Gentile in the of God. Right? I'm an <laughs> right. atheist, but I mean, you know, I, there, there's a strong hypothesis that these higher religions emerged two to 3,000 years ago um, with the emergence of multi-ethnic mm-hmm. empires. Mm-hmm. And so you need a common currency. And the common currency is the fact that you are the same in the sight of God. And, um, you know, you may have, uh, you know, I mean, my family's from South Asia and uh, a million people, and I shouldn't laugh, but a million people died in 1947 because of their mm-hmm. religious differences. And these are genetically, I mean, they were killing people who are genetically literally mm-hmm. the same because like the Muslims are converted on the Hindus, right? Um, so, I mean, you know, or you go to Northern Ireland and these are basically right. the same people. They're very, 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 it's really difficult to like see any difference. And yet, you know, there's these tensions and troubles. And so, uh, you know, there's other angles that can cause fission, but that also can cause fusion. So if you go to England, um, you know, I have relatives in England, uh, and the Muslim subculture, in particular, but not exclusively, um, the Pakistani Muslim subculture is very, very mm-hmm. insular. You know, in a literal way. And I, I mean, yes, they're on an island, but also like culturally, they're on an island, and they're very indigenous as well. So these are people who's they're not like me, where it's like their parents are immigrants. Like their parents might have been born in Manchester area, you know, or Bradford, or their grandparents. Yes. And so these are multi-generational, insular, very British, but not mm-hmm. English, Christian or cultural. You know, they're very different and they create their own form of Islam, which um, is very international in a way. Like there's, it's not, it becomes post-South Asian. So you have this new culture that's emerging and, you know, they're also racially different. Uh, there's the, the exogamy rate is quite low. And then you compare it to, say, the black British experience, which is totally different. Um, if you look at the intermarriage rates, right. they're just crazy. You know, and there's a lot of people in Britain that are a fourth black. And so I guess my understanding. Yeah, I'm sorry to cut you off. My question is, what does whiteness mean? Because we have a similar situation in America, too. You have millions of of people like my daughter Mm -hmm. in previous generations who would have simply passed into being white. Then they have children who never know that they have a mother that was 20 percent more or less West African descended. Um, So you have a lot of white people Mm -hmm. walking around with African DNA in them, actually. What does what does whiteness mean? 
mm-hmm. truly. Yeah. Well, it depends on where you are, right? And in the United States, we have hyper-descent. And I think it's artificial. And well, of I course think, it's um, artificial. But it, it, that's what the whole idea of whiteness is based on, is that it's some type of purity, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it is. I mean, again, um, you know, it's like there is where there is where concrete biology meets, you know. Like, so, for example, the way I would explain it to is like I, I get annoyed with um, with people who who beca- like for example, mm-hmm. like Linda Sarsour said, when she puts on a headscarf, she no longer became mm-hmm. white. Okay, M- my brown skinned friends that are Pakistani, they mm-hmm. don't have that choice. When they take the headscarf, they stay brown. <laughs> okay, so there are Turks. They can just switch their identity because they're really white. But since Islam is coded as non-white, if they dress a particular way, they become quote brown. You know, or I've talked to um, you know Latino people in the United States who are obviously of overwhelming European descent, as evident in their light hair and blue eyes, who want to assert brown solidarity with me, and I basically look at them, I'm like, okay, we're not going to go there because, like, right. my of ass course. is brown. I mean, like, like it's <laughs> legit brown, okay? Uh, I know what you're trying to do, but uh, it's not the same, you know? That, that's the kind of, that's the artificiality of the entire thing, and that's why I think um, whatever biological component there might be when you're talking about populations, um, in the day-to-day lived reality of, of these multi-ethnic societies, the race idea causes more harm than, than any good that comes out of it. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we in the United States have systematized it into a very, very formal yeah. ideology. It doesn't exist like that in a lot of the world, right? And that formal ideology comes out of particular history. So that's, that's historical. Absolutely. I'm, I, it's very difficult for French people to understand my, my racial identity when I try to explain to them hyperdescent and things like mm-hmm. this. Yeah, yeah hyperdescent is, is bizarre to people in, to basically everywhere mm-hmm. else, you know? Um, but I mean, the, I do think like if you sit down and you explain the particular history, if you have a little time, it's not that difficult. And I guess, you know, growing up in the United States, I thought it was weird, but you know, I learned it and I just kind of accepted it. You talk to someone from India, they think it's like super weird, but for me, of course, yeah, weird. yeah. And, and then they have like explained it to me and for them, it's like, well, I never really had to explain it. It's just kind yeah, of, of something you yeah. know, you know, it's, it's, it's like something, you know, and then, um, but, you know, gro- you know, living in California for a while, I, I do have to say one thing that's interesting is like, you know, some people say like the difference is black versus non-black in the United States. And I saw that because like, I don't know, like one of my closest friends was just like talking about like, you know, these Asians, blah, 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 something. And, you know, I was just kind of joking with him and I was just like, dude, this racist. He looks at me, he's like, I'm a fourth <laughs> Filipino. And then he just kept going. You know, where I was just like, he had permission. And I'm like, bro, yeah, you are like a fourth Filipino. I'm trying to see that. That's why that's but that's why the Beijing the Beijing of the country, uh the the, the increase the increasing mixture of the country won't necessarily um uh defeat racism. In fact it might exacerbate it. Because kids okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, look, look, look at Brazil. People but like with the ideology that we're creating too, this kind of essentialist thinking that like um the mm-hmm. light-skinned Latino can can be a minority too. You know, um, that mentality is going to be very difficult for people like that to even feel the white guilt that that that, that white liberals can feel today. When when if 
a, a person that's a fourth Filipino mm-hmm. is no, mm-hmm. you're not going to appeal to their sense of, uh, of guilt. They're going to say, no way I'm, I'm by the, by the rules of the game, I'm a minority too. So I, so I'm an oppressed person too. So this is why I think that we all have to kind of step back from this kind of uh, identity essentialism because it, it ends up in a very bad place. I think one conceivable future is 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 a kind of light-skinned black mixed latino white and asian kind of um part of society that really doesn't interact with an increasingly isolated marginalized and an impoverished very dark-skinned kind of underclass and that's a terrible future to imagine you know but you won't even be able to appeal to a historical sense of guilt with this group of light-skinned um this mixed group of light-skinned people that also kind of in their minds have a minority status too. Well, you, you're kind of describing Brazil. Yes, very much so. Uh, but that's a society where any drop of, it's the opposite of white, but any drop of white blood makes you not black, mm-hmm. you know, that, where you can have Neymar Jr. Yeah. saying that yeah. he, he's, not, he's not black, you know. And he's black in many black so- Americans. Like I want, I want to get a sense of. I mean, so you live in Paris. I'm assuming you, you assume your kids will grow up as Parisian, but I mean, what does that mean now? Because you know, Europe has a low fertility. Um, I know the Islamic world is very, very salient right now, but like, if you just look at the demographics, um, Africa's fertility is. I mean, look, Nigeria is going to have like way more people. It's going to have almost as many people as the EU. An enormous amount, yeah, of Nigerians are going to be born. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, how are Europeans? Are they are they grappling with this? Do they understand that their world? So I wrote uh, in the summer of 2017. I was reporting a piece that came out in December 2017 for the New Yorker, a long piece on um, the kind of French far right that's influenced uh, some of the American alt right, and they kind of um, they are a very kind of hodgepodge group of uh, of different thinkers. But this one guy, Renaud Camus has this phrase that caught on all over the world called the great replacement. And when I went to visit him in his castle in, uh, in, in Gascony, um, where there are actually no immigrants, but where he's obsessed with immigration and the idea that, that whites are being replaced by, by brown and black people, he kept bringing up um, Nigeria and Sub-Saharan Africa as, uh, you know, he, he fundamentally really is against Islam, but he said numerically the real catastrophe is this kind of, um, this population boom that's going to come out of Africa and that is obviously going to press against um, a declining population in Europe. And, you know, he's a kind of fear monger and he's absolutely a racist, but um, of course there's something to this, right? There's a certain type of mathematical aspect of it that is what makes it so resonant. And that's why I think we really have to have a kind of philosophical way of grappling with this, a way of communicating why, um, you know, some swapping of biological uh, or of genetic material and some kind of cultural mixing is not actually um, the end of the world that has happened in the past. And we can, be, we can, we can make societies work. Um, I think that right now, you know, guys mm-hmm. like that fill a vacuum because liberals don't want to talk about um, some of the actual um, problems that are on the horizon or potential problems, some of the actual changes that are on the horizon. Uh, so there's a kind of silence that allows, um, that allows uh, racist voices to step in and say, look, I, I see this and you see this too. Um, they don't want to talk about it, but this is going on. and We're being replaced. It's a kind of white genocide. So I think that um, most people in the mainstream out here are not actually addressing this. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that's that's my impression. I mean, um, it and like France, unlike um, a lot of European countries, does have a strong assimilative tradition. Yeah, absolutely. And it does have an ideology of assimilation. So in a way, you are in a culture or a society and a nation that's the best case scenario. Now imagine um, Poland, which is like Ireland, a nation that sends people out traditionally in the last century or two. Um, but I mean, if you have open borders within the EU and you have you know mass migration coming in, you know I, I don't know. I mean, so one thing that I wonder about is um, the Gulf model, where you have a small citizen class and you have people from all over the rest of the world who mm-hmm. are basically second class citizens. You know, mm-hmm. like medics, like ancient Athens, where you had a a productive non citizen class that would pay taxes, that would support these heavily like involved and militarized mm-hmm. um, citizen population. I mean, I, I don't think that that's a necessary prediction, but I mean, this is a model that could happen in in a place like Dubai. They just, you know, they hire mercenaries from Pakistan to look over a predominantly South Asian population with some Africans. And, you know, when I was in the Middle East, one thing that I noticed, um, I went for business a couple of years ago, is the extent of racial, um, almost like it's a caste system. Um, so, you know, all the all the um, security guards at the hospitals look to be East African. Um, you know, all the nurses were from Kerala. Uh, you know, obviously the Arabs didn't really do any work besides government work that I could mm-hmm. see. You know, um, the, the laborers tend to be all over the place, but like often from Philippines, Bangladesh, you know. Um, so society went on. I mean, you know, if you have some resources, especially, it's actually a fun place to live. But um, it's definitely very different than what we have in the West and what we assume is going to be the end of history. <laughs> you know, it's more like cyberpunk dystopia. I think we have to figure out what it is that uh, that we're so afraid of uh, in the imaginative other. You know, why is it a zero-sum game? Why is identity a zero-sum game where if there is a presence of, of, of a Muslim in your society, you lose somehow some of your Frenchness? You know, I, I, I've been thinking about this a lot and I've been thinking about how to communicate um, and, how, and how to have conversations that allow people to see um, a non-zero-sum future for, 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 for these Western countries uh, where people are going to come, whether we build walls or whether we try to repel them or not. It's just a fact that people are coming, that people are going to be different. And how do we make sense of our lives within that reality? I, I, I think the zero something though, zero something, I think I can't speak to a little. There's a lot of work out of cultural evolution that um, intergroup competition mm-hmm. at the level of, say, tribes, clans, um, chiefs were probably very, very important across the human history, like deep history, you know, back into the Paleolithic. And so if you think of intergroup competition, I mean, most of the world has been Malthusian. <laughs> And so if, you you know, one group is going to win, one group is going to lose, it's not going to be a win-win scenario. And I think this is why free trade, for example, even though it's relatively elegant, simple, and robust, is very, very hard to convince people about because um, our psychology is geared towards zero-sum games. And that's been, yeah, so I'm saying that's most of our history. So I think it's a, it's a psychological impulse that we have to... We have to overcome um, it because most of our history, yeah. we haven't had societies that make new citizens. Uh, we haven't... The United States, um, people come to the United States, they become American. People come to France and they become French. So the, the idea that we hold this residue of they're not French, because we, we're talking not just about um, 
refugees. We're talking about people who are considered other um, in societies in which they are born and have citizenship rights, right? We have to, we, we still have the residue of tribal competition where their presence makes a white French person mm-hmm. feel a diminishment of his white French identity. And we have to figure out a way of, uh, of, yeah. of, of, of changing this. Um, well, I mean, I would say we have figured out a way. It just was, uh, we moved on it beyond it. Like, I mean, the imperial system, imperial systems did have a level of cosmopolitanism. It just wasn't democratic liberalism. That's right. But even in our democratic liberal societies, we're really struggling. Um, I mean, in the, 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 the whole um, rhetoric in Europe that's, you know, that's led to Brexit, that's led to, you know, the Front National surging in the polls, that led to AfD in Germany, that what you see in Hungary and Poland where they don't even have uh, significant numbers of migrants. Um, the whole idea is that you can't have a, a kind of Western society with too many non-whites, right? It makes people on some level uncomfortable. Um, if I could just interject, yeah. I would just say it's almost a phenomenon of white people discovering ethnicity. Mm-hmm. So in a way, they're beginning to act like, even though they are the ethnic majority, but in a lot of ways, they're beginning to vote in a as opposed to being the default uh, national matrix where they split into left or right. They're now, I mean, some voters are being motivated to vote on behalf of their collective group interests as they defi- uh, identify themselves. And uh, just as another corollary to what you guys were discussing, uh, like in Britain right now, we see a lot of second generation EU immigrants. So I could tell you stories about uh, Dutch people of Somali descent who have now immigrated to London and then Italians of Albanian descent who are also coming to Britain. So it's just a big jumble. And I think in a lot of ways, we're also assuming that migration will continue endlessly. Mm-hmm. But then the whole idea is that migration is more also a reflection of relative per capita disparity incomes and how long is it going to be before the West is so much more richer than everyone else as well so after a while I don't think it's going to be every generation we're going to be seeing new waves of immigrants even from Africa because after a while Africa isn't going to be uh, six times poorer or whatever the uh, you know whatever the factor Mm -hmm. is compared to Europe well that's the I think that's the that's one fundamental component of any solution is to to create a world in which people aren't killing themselves to get out of where they're um, born right yeah yeah I mean I that I, that's a totally good point and uh, one thing that I do caution is all these linear projections are stupid beyond a generation or two um, go back and read linear projections mm-hmm. to like the 1930s about how America um, is going to stabilize at 180 <laughs> million really? in the year 2000. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's real stuff, you know, I mean, it's just like, so, so, you know, you know, I do think we do need to be a little cautious. Um, but, you know, I, I want to go back to what you were talking about in terms of like this ideologies that we have. Um, and I, and I want to make it explicit for the listener um, where I'm coming from. I, I think that in a way, the modern liberal system, liberal democratic system is a reversion and a throwback to a very, very ancient way of humans to or, of organizing in relatively egalitarian tribal units that scale up to these sides mm-hmm. of the nation states. And that's, you know, the invention and the myth of the romantic era mm-hmm. and nationalism of the British people and of the French people descended from the Gauls. Um, but for most of human history, this was actually, I mean, history as in the written period, so after the Sumerians, this wasn't as much of an issue in part because you had the rise of multi-ethnic empires. And in these empires, it was just taken for granted that people would be very different and that there would be different nations bound together by a monarch 
or unified by a church. Um, you know, in China, you had the Chinese, the Chinese people were created to a great extent mm-hmm. by the Chinese state. Like the state homogenized them over time, but there were always other people within China. And in fact, for much of China's history, the ruler was not ethnically Chinese. Like the last mm-hmm. imperial dynasty was Manchu. They assimilated culturally to Chinese forms, right? So there was a dominant culture, but within that, you know, system, or like let's say the Byzantines, most of the Byzantine emperors were not actually ethnic Greek. They turned out to be mostly Armenian if you look at their genealogy, but they promoted a religion and a language of Greek Orthodox Christianity and that civilization. And so we we do have a pre-modern model. I mean, maybe we need a different model for the future, but um, it could also be just descriptively, and I'm not saying I, I favor this, it could just be descriptively these last couple of centuries of ethnically homogenous nation states unified by particular, you know, linguistic identities might be an aberration and we're going back to a pre-modern scenario of a commonwealth of nations with various different yeah that's absolutely that's absolutely possible that that was an aberration it was a mistaken kind of uh move away from what was before the the whole idea of nationalism i mean i don't know how deep you want to get into that conversation Yasha Monk always makes this point uh, that that I, that I find very resonating. Um, that e- even when you know a paradigm is outdated and is wrong, until a new paradigm comes into play that you can shift to, you will still use the wrong paradigm because it fulfills all the. It kind of it, 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 you need something else to to come into uh, vision before you can shift. You can't just jump into nothing mm-hmm. and kind of wing it and figure it out. So I think we're we're using like you're saying we're using yeah. um, paradigms that were more appropriate to previous eras, and we don't yet have that um, that 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 way of making our new realities work. That, those new, yeah, we it, it's it's, yeah. it's a kind of real. It feels like an interregnum period, and we're not yet where we're going to need mm-hmm, to be if mm-hmm. we get there. You know. Well, I mean, I, I was um, I think your uh, I think your interview with Richard. Spencer in the New York Times pointed out an issue that I have like observed. And I think partly it's because of my status. Like I grew up in the United States in the 1980s and to a lesser extent, the nineties, that's not like the United States today. That's, you know, right. everyone was still black or white. And so if you're something different, um, you kind of have to explain yourself a little, yep. yeah. you know, but you kind of understood that that was the America that, it, that it was, you know, but that dichotomy is from a particular history and also a particular That's ideology. Right. Yeah, the black-white binary is not the Amer- is not the America that we see with our own eyes in 2019. But it's but, it's but that's the language yeah. that people talk in, and so, um, you know, well, like the the whole idea of, for example, you know, people switch right. between people of color as black people and as just all non-white people constantly Absolutely, in a very confusing yeah. way, and um, it's 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 imprecise, but it's also part of the language because it allows you to talk about certain things. So you know, I'm just going to be like straight up and say like one of the most annoying things for me is uh, South Asian American <laughs> SJWs because they're very privileged people quite often um, wielding, you know, their private school and Ivy League education, educated verbal skills against the oppression of the white man, even though I know these people and I knew they, they grew up in Atherton or Brookline, you know, and um, or like a really nice area of Westchester. And to me, you know, this is like they're working, whether they're doing it consciously or not. And I think some of them are not doing it consciously, but some of them I'm pretty sure they're doing consciously because I've talked to them and I know they know what they're doing. These are people who are basically uh, privileged white people that have brown skin. Some of these privileged South Asian American women are 
they're it's like um throwing captain america into a room with a bunch of civilians they just destroy the room because they have they have the skills and they are also raised as upper middle class right. privileged white women right. but they happen they to found brown. a loophole in the game that's i mean a large part of the, the, the Twitter conversation that we were talking about in the beginning is is, is is driven by people who kind of have found a loophole in the game. It's not driven by actual oppressed minorities. Yes. No, because the actual oppressed minorities have exactly. other things to do yeah, than exactly. be on Twitter. But I think uh, what you're also alluding to, and I see this very acutely in Britain, uh, the paradigm is that uh, the elites are now look at the elites and the upper middle classes in Britain are looking very different to the rest of society. So even though society is rapidly transforming in terms of ethnicity and color and whatnot, Oxbridge uh, and also the elite is still very much made in a particular caste and mold. So uh, just as we had like Jews in the 1920s and 1930s hacking their way ultimately into the elite of Wasp America, you know, when you talk about loophole in the game, this is a way for South Asian uh, verbal elites or whatever, what you call it, trying to find their own space in, in the elite space, which is, you know, which drives most conversations as well. So in a way, it's just an evolutionary adaptation that the mainstream America is trying to catch up to what uh, elite America, you know, needs to look like after a couple of years and, uh, or decades. There's usually a lag between the two. Right. Like Wasp America was still operative you know, maybe a, a couple of decades after mainstream America had changed its own demographics. That's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little more complicated in the United States because, you know, we do have different types of uh, non-white people with very different. I mean, you know, like I'm, I'm like a pretty like brown-skinned person, and I've experienced racism in my life. Um, but it's, you know, I, I don't it's not the same as if I was black and I also don't think I would not want to be a lower middle or working class white person. But the, the, it's, it, it's like, it's not the same as if you were a certain kind of, if you were in a certain kind of black experience, but part of what I try to push against so much is the idea that there's anything like a uniform black experience in, especially in the 21st yes, century. That is my dad totally is fair. old enough to be my grandfather. He was born in 1937 in Texas, in in Longview, Texas, and you could say that there was a more or less unified Black experience back then, pre civil rights. But you know, you're 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 darker than many Black people I know. Um, if you come from a kind of upper middle class Black background, of which you know there are many people in the United States now, um, I wouldn't say that you live without racism, but you can live a kind of life that is in many ways not oppressed uh, in any meaningful way. You know, if you're getting outside of the language of microaggressions and things like this, which, you know, you really have to decide to what degree you want, you're going to allow those things to um, get inside your head. But if you just look at the day-to-day life and the opportunities, I mean, the idea that there's anything like a unified black or white experience, because in my, I mean, you can never prove a universal from a particular, but I think very much about these things because of my family, the people that own businesses, the people that have advanced degrees, the people that are cosmopolitan and are learned uh, are the black people in my family, uh, except for my mother. But uh, my mother's in my extended family, the, the conservative gun owning, Trump voting, family members I have who are locked into kind of 
you know, um, non-college educated, you know, union jobs and things like that. Th those are, those are the white people. And so I don't actually think that I suffer any kind of, even the kind of microaggressions or the kind of slights that you deal with by having, you know, psychological membership in a historically oppressed group. I don't think that that actually outweighs the fact that in every material measure and most psychological measures, my life is actually um, qualitatively better than my white family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like I probably agree with you. I mean, it's just like I'm American and in this country, um, you can't compare yourself to black people. Like, let's be honest, you know, like that's a particular experience. Yeah, you certainly can't do that. On, you can't do that. On yeah. Twitter. Well, I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I do sometimes, but I like, I'm like evil right winger. I mean, that's one of the things about like saying you're right wing, like you're already going to hell. I actually didn't know that you were a actual right winger. Oh yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I, it, for me, politics isn't super important to me, but, um, but yeah, like I'm Republican. Yeah, for sure ambivalent for like um, right elites right now because uh, most are not big fans but most are also terrified of of um you know the future left-wing dictator or right. whatever i mean it's very polarized right now you know if you if you're gonna have to force people to choose you know stuff is not gonna happen i mean if if bernie's elected and bernie's nominated a lot of people are gonna vote socialist who aren't socialist because you got to vote for one of course you know it's the same thing right, so right. um yeah I, I i pretty much agree with you i i do I, I did listen to um you know i follow glenn and john and um i did listen to your mm -hmm. conversation with with coleman uh hughes and, and you guys and in general i think we're pretty much on the same page on on the big picture and i think there's differences you know like like i'm i'm pretty like open about being a twinkie like I don't have much South Asian pride. I don't really care about being you know? a Twinkie. <laughs> you know, it's just like, I don't really, or coconut, whatever. I don't really care. I mean, it's in my Twitter handle, you know, um, to me, mm -hmm. like, I don't like, I'm an atheist. Like I don't value my Islamic heritage in any way. And I don't know how to read Bengali. So that cuts me off from that. It's just like, I'm pretty realistic about that. Um, in terms of what my kids want to be, like, it's up to them. Like, you know, they were, as you could, would say today, white presenting. So if they want to say that, they can say that. I don't really care. I mean, I, I don't have like a great, deep um love of my heritage whatever that is like i'm interested in science of the future that's just kind of how i am and that's my personal choice and i don't judge other people who are different you know um like mm -hmm. if if you want to like care about your past and your heritage i also think that's cool that's fine i mean i don't care i mean i, I have a job partly because of that honestly so <laughs> i obviously <laughs> don't have a problem with that and i think um, the problem that i see is that there are people who are different different positions along the spectrum, but they act as if their own position is the position, you know? So the cultural appropriation argument mm -hmm. is a lot of it's fake, but some of it is from people who think, well, I'm Asian, a white person should not be able to use my culture. But the whole point there is my, there's no such thing. Culture is not yours. Like you are, you are Absolutely. part of it. Absolutely. And it's never been, and, 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 you know, the idea that, um, Cultural appropriation only works in one direction. And so it's never appropriation if, you know, my father or I learned to speak English and read Shakespeare, yeah. you know, that's never appropriation. But, it's, you know, the, the, the conversation yeah. is, is just another way of asserting power, you know. And I think that what we're really dealing with in a lot of ways is, and it's, and I can understand it, is, is, is people in groups who have historically not had a say, not been listened to, not had much power, suddenly... Um, flexing actual power in the in in the public discourse. Yeah, you know? well, and one thing that I do I do have to say though is I, 
I feel like, um, you know, I'm really interested in Chinese history. I'll give you an example. And so, you know, like, I'll like bring up some example from a Chinese, you know, dynasty or whatever. And people have literally said to me, wow, that's really interesting. You're brown and you're interested in Chinese history. <laughs> you know, and I'm not going to say it's racist, but it's basically like there is a problem where a lot of non-white people in the West get caught up in the binary. And so they know Shakespeare right. and they know, quote unquote, their own culture. And that's just right. how it is. And so that's why it's surprising that I, you know, know the Chinese dynasties and stuff like that, because I'm not Chinese. And, you know, white people, they have a certain privilege of being interested in the whole world. The whole world is their playground. You know, they. I mean, well, to an extent, I mean, but the whole world, I, we have to get to a point where, I mean, I'm naive enough to, to really take seriously Terrence's comment that uh, as a human being, nothing human is alien to you. You know, how, how can we make a society where people really take that kind of um, notion seriously without without kind of an ironic laugh or, you know? Um, I don't know, but, you know, it, 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 it seems to me um, identity politics, cultural appropriation, these things, these, these are swords that anybody can pick up and use, and, and the best way forward is to figure out how to lay down the sword, you know? I do have to jump in for listeners, um, especially American listeners. Um, Terrence is not a rapper. Terrence lived 2,000 years ago in the Roman <laughs> Empire. I'm just saying. Um, there's certain, you know, if you said Ovid, okay, it's pretty clear what you're talking about. <laughs> It's just I've I've had experiences right. when people have referred to Terrence, and <laughs> they obviously didn't know who you're talking about. Um, I, I do want to close out with talking about like France and its future because you're you're steadily in there. Like I've I've never been to France. I've been around it, um, but never ended up going. My wife's gone there a lot um, to Paris, but um, so France, you know, is in the news. You have the Jupiterian president Macron. Um, you know, and France has a certain image of itself as a model for the world, uh, a light unto the nations, um, even though its, it's phraseology would be different. Um, and you have children there, you have French children, and they're going to grow up French. I mean, yeah. how do you feel about that? Are you optimistic about the future of the French nation? Oddly, I'm in some ways more optimistic about America. Um, in terms of a multi-ethnic society. I think actually that America more or less continuously moves in the right direction. I know that you're not supposed to say that, but I think that Trump is in, in kind of um, the xenophobic moment we're living through right now is kind of an aberration. I think that the, 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 the America, I believe, that uh, owns the future is the kind of America that... Um, Maybe you're going to hate this, but this is the America that put Obama in office. I really do think that. I think that actually America, um, regardless of all the rhetoric of the wall, you know, 75% of Americans don't actually want the wall. Um, Latinos do really well in America. Muslims do much better. Yeah. Muslim immigrants do much better in America than they do in Europe. There are real reasons for this. I think that America um, is already a pretty good uh, multi-ethnic society. And I think it is a, it is a better multi-ethnic society than France is right now. However, I think that France's um, kind of rhetoric and the idea of republicanism and the idea that um, there are no ethnicities, you know, in the, in the official language of the constitution, they struck the word race from it because race is not a real concept. Why do we refer to races? People in France are French. If you're, if you're a citizen of France, that, that's the official position and I think that that's actually where we want to be. Mm -hmm. 
our rhetoric is not anywhere near there, but I think the lived reality is actually measurably better in the United States. So if there could be a marriage of the rhetoric with the reality, I think we would be in the right direction. But on the, the, in the lived reality in France, um, people live very, very separated lives. Uh, even in, in Paris is a more segregated, in my experience, Paris is a much more segregated city. I'm married to a white Parisian woman and I have the, what I can say is absolutely the, the cultural privilege of being an American. It's just, there's no comparison, whether you're black, white, Chinese, being an American in France and in Paris is the kind of um, uh, past that gets you out, out of all the kind of uh, troubling and bothersome situations that other types of foreigners have to deal yeah. with. But the, the, the city is very segregated. People have very um, segregated dinner tables. Um, upper middle class and aristocratic uh, white French people, in my experience, don't bump into, especially not as equals in the workplace or in, or in the elite schools, they don't bump into many um, talented and, and, and equal standing Arabs and blacks and, and Asians. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, you're kind of saying what a lot of people say about most European nations. Uh, um, I will tell you that, um, you know, people, a lot of people say that, you know, we're in this moment of racism in the United States, but, you know, growing up in the, you know, we're about the same age, growing up in the 80s and 90s, I can tell you, like, there was a lot more racism mm-hmm. that I personally experienced day to day than I do today. So uh, when I lived even in the late 80s, early 90s, when I lived with my, 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 my black father, and my white mother in a suburb of Manhattan, 45 minutes west of Manhattan in New Jersey, we were a family that could turn heads walking into the Red Lobster. People, people would stare at us. And sometime around the turn of the millennium, that just stopped happening and, and no one bats yes. an eye. No one cares. I experienced the same thing, yeah. Um, I experienced the same thing. Yeah. Like when I was, uh, I still remember the moment, I think it was when I was in fourth grade, um, our librarian had a fainting spell due to some health issue. And so her husband came to pick her up and he was black. <laughs> and everyone was just really quiet. <laughs> and I think we talked about it for like a day because her husband was black. Anyway, I'm just, I'm just saying today, I don't think kids would talk about it. <laughs> you know, kids would not talk about it. It's just, it just is not interesting. And um, I, I think it's the exact right. same thing around the year 2000. I, I don't feel like anyone I mean, there are people who care, but the people who care keep their mouths shut. It's not normative. It's not the dominant thing. So that's changed a lot. Um, I guess, like, I mean, but it's interesting that you're more optimistic about the United States because just by the exigencies of, of your life situation, you've settled into a good life in Paris. And so that's what you're Yeah, I, because I think that um, being an American in Europe is a very nice, you know, I, I there's this strange um, notion um you know, at places like Yale or Harvard that like you don't need to study abroad, the, the rates of study abroad are much lower at schools like that. And there's this kind of equal notion that like if you're American, you should never uh, emigrate. Um, but Americans can find like wonderful opportunities uh, with their citizenship, with their culture in other um, locations. And it's actually really, really wonderful to be an American in Europe. Uh, you have like 27 nations you can live and work in. Mm-hmm. Uh, people speak English people, the educated certainly speak English, and you're kind of um, you're culturally the opposite of marginalized in these places. So yeah, um, I I found a good life for myself, and I think I may have found a better life for myself than I could find as a writer, certainly in New York City. You know, yeah. there, uh, 
part of the reason why I'm in Europe is because to be a writer, to be an American writer in a social democracy is kind of like recreating that middle class lifestyle that you used to be able to have as a writer in America, but is no longer really available uh, in a city like New York. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, we need to close out, but I, I do want to put in there, like I've talked, I have friends in media, um, younger friends who often want to leave media, ask me about data science master's programs, just so you know. But um, it's in these big urban areas, um, the pressure to be exactly the same as everybody else is driven partly by just economic considerations of how easily oh, yeah. you can be marginalized. Oh, yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. It's like a very... I mean, I couldn't have a family uh, doing what I do in New York City. Uh, things would have to be significantly different to have two kids and to raise them the way that I want to raise them. Yeah. But in a social democracy, that's kind of um, that's possible. So I think that more Americans actually, that's another subject, but I think more Americans should think about um, leaving home to look for opportunities elsewhere the way that most of the world, you know, um, has thought about leaving for opportunities elsewhere. All right. Um, you know, we've been talking for a while, so I, I want to close this out, but um, it was a really great conversation. Um, and uh, I'll definitely like uh, keep up with you on Twitter. And, um, you know, we could talk a lot more about a lot more things, but uh, I think we uh, we hit the main points. So, um, yeah. Yeah. All right. It's um, always interesting to talk with an intelligent person. So thank you very much for having me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, I will uh, see you around. Tune in next week for Brown Cat.